Welcome to today's podcast. Uh, we will be joined very shortly um, by Mike Callahan, president and owner of Mark Golden Associates. Um, let me just invite all our guests in. Mark Golden Associates, as you, everyone should know, have been global leaders in the field of um, systematic instruction and customised employment since the early 70s. We'll also be joined today um, by June Alexander, um, CETA's resident supported employment um, systematic instruction expert, um, who is doing something different for us. This is the first time we'll have had a three-way conversation. Hopefully we'll get some rules in place and it'll work fine. So any tick, tick of the clock now, we'll have them on board. Um, you look at the timeline of Mark Golden Associates, you can see it goes back well into the 70s when Mark started the organisation. Um, I think today will prove to be a, a fascinating discussion, one we're all looking forward to. Hopefully our guests will be able to join reasonably quickly. Um, the tech worked for us last night. We'll see what happens this morning. So not too long now, and we'll be up and running, hopefully. I can see we have some guests logging in. Brilliant, that's excellent. Um, the history, when you when you look at um, Mark Golden Associates, it's quite a storied history and you can see why they're recognised as the pioneers in the field of systematic instruction. Uh, Mike is just entering the studio now, so he won't be too far away. Uh, that way you won't, won't have to listen to me, you'll be able to listen to Mike. And Mike, I just connect Mike. And Mike, are you there? Not there. Yep. Mike, are you there? Can you hear me? Uh, yes, I can hear. <laughs> good evening to you, or good morning, depending on where you are. <laughs> it's evening. Thank you. June just entering the studio as well, and um, then we'll get, get cracking with this. Hopefully, we've got it sorted last night. Not too far away now. So I was just looking at the history of um, Mark Golden Associates, and um, it's extraordinary. Um, and I guess while we're waiting for June, I might actually um, might get, a, get going with a question for you then. Um, tell me, when, when you look at the present Mark Golden Associates, what's its connection to Mark's early research that obviously goes back to the 70s when he started this and probably beyond that? Yeah, I think uh, there's probably still uh, three or four of us around that work directly with Mark. Uh, more than that, knew him. Uh, I counted the number of associates, including myself this morning, there were 20. Uh, and of that number, I, I would say five, maybe six, uh, knew Mark personally. And, um, and so we, we worked with him. Some people starting as early as, as the first project in 76, uh, I went to work in 79, uh, others uh, a few years before, and then some several years after. So. Uh, we we have quite a, a clear connection in that he had, uh, you know, he had been the president and uh, had led us through the early years. So uh, I, I would say it's a very very strong connection, and we've managed to, you know, of course, to bring new people in and to get them aware of of the the concepts and the strategies that he left, and develop some new ones ourselves. Right. 
this, um, I can see June's having a bit of a struggle to get online, but that's fine. Um, not really, but we'll get there. Um, it's when you look at some of the earlier work, and I'm, when I look at the history of the organisation, uh, I mean, most of us look at it and we think, okay, it started with systematic instruction. But what was the real origin for it? Is that the origin for it? I mean, I think you have to say yes. Uh, Mark had done his research. Uh, on what he called the try another way approach. That was his label for systematic instruction. He did that in the late 60s and throughout the early 70s uh, as a professor at uh, the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana. Uh, during that time, he, was, he had developed a three-day training. It was a, a large attendance. It really was. I mean, it, uh, audiences probably averaged 250 to, to 350 people. And uh, in one such, uh, I, I met him at one of these uh, on the Gulf Coast of Mississippi here, but uh, about two months later, he was in Los Angeles, which was his home hometown. Uh, and in the audience was Ed Roberts, the founder of the World Institute on Disability. And uh, at the time, Ed was uh, the director of the Vocational Rehabilitation State Agency. He came up to Mark after hearing him for three days. Uh, and by the way, Ed used a ventilator to stay alive uh, and uh, had been deemed unemployable by the same agency that he was running several years later. Uh, that was quite a poignant event. But anyway, came up to Mark and said, you need to come into California and train this to every counselor in the state. And Mark responded, well, I, I don't have a company. I'm a professor. And uh, and Ed chided him and said, you, you can't put this together. Come on. And and that was the beginning. I mean, so actually, Mark Golden Associates began uh, with a project solely focused on systematic instruction. Right. And, and I guess that for, most, for many of us, the, uh, when we look at uh, the history of systematic instruction, invariably when you do a search online, uh, those videos pop up from Try Another Way back in the 70s. Um, and that seems to still seems to be the gold standard. Well, yeah, and, and it's, it's hard to imagine. I don't really understand it, even though I know a lot of the people. I can think of any number of excuses why and I guess where I'm going with this is is why it hasn't expanded more than it has. Why other professors and you know uh, and practitioners haven't haven't kind of picked up the the challenge that and the foundation that Mark laid down. Uh, it's it's hard to know. Uh, and indeed, it was difficult for us in some years back in the '80s. Uh, uh, paradoxically, at the beginning of supported employment, we just about had to go out of business because no one, no one was really asking for uh, systematic instruction. It was like, well, we did that back in the day, back in the late seventies or early eighties, and uh, and we don't need it anymore, you know, because we've got employment now. And uh, uh, from my perspective, we needed it even more so. Uh, but uh, certainly, from his beginnings, Mark Gold's beginnings. Um, it, he laid out some new direction that that Bowley changed and challenged many of the long held beliefs and uh, and strategies. So uh, it, it doesn't surprise me that he's still uh, seen as that. Uh, unfortunately, for those of us today, we're we're more practitioners than researchers. Uh, we uh, we stand on the evidence base of Marx research, but we spend most of our time 
helping people get the lives that they'd like to have using that information. Right. Um, I think June might have succeeded in joining us. June, are you there? No, nope. <laughs> says June's <laughs> online. Well, we're going tech problems again today, Mike. Um, June, if you when you join, by all means, yell at us. Um, that's a really interesting statement. Um, we made the observation there, and uh, about people saying, "Oh, you know, um, we we we're doing that, and we don't need it anymore." Um, that's a fascinating one um, because we were having this discussion recently as well, and it it still fascinates us that despite the fact that these are known methodologies, organizations are still not adopting them. True enough. And, and, and like with us, the known methodologies were, were mostly academic based and, and that's fine. I mean, they have to start there, you know, they, well, I don't know that they have to, but they often start there and they're, they're well-funded, more well-funded to start there. Uh, but then they have to be put into practice and the, the chasm here in the States, and I would, I would bet it is in Australia and many other places around the world, is that uh, there's, there's just this uh, gap between uh, the, the academic uh, researcher and, the, and the, the person who's right there using the information. And, uh, and so then, you know, making sure that, that information translates effectively. Uh, and there almost always need to be changes. And uh, we've had the benefit of the long view to where we could make those changes uh, in practice. So that's, that's been a, a very positive thing for us. But I think a lot of people did not have that opportunity to make that happen. Let me just see if June's on board. Are you there, June? Yeah, I think I am. Excellent. Can you hear me? We can hear you. Fantastic. Um, Mike, I'm just, um, hi, Mike, how are you today? I, I'm fine. Thank you very much, Jim. <laughs> That's good. Um, now, I've, no, I've been listening as I've been trying to connect in, um, and I noticed that you've been talking about systematic instruction. I'm just wondering if we can take people back and if you'd like to give a little bit of an explanation of what systematic instruction, it's also a big part of my life and um, I do training in this area and I've been such an advocate for the system um, you know, throughout my 30 plus years in the disability field, but I'm still wondering if some people may not know exactly what that is. Yeah. And, um, I've been doing a lot of writing about it, as I told you guys yesterday in our practice. And, uh, so, uh, it's, it's fresh in my head. And, uh, so it, it helps to think about systematic instruction at, just from a set of components and, uh, and uh, there, there are three that we work from that Mark Gold left the, the foundation for and that we've expanded on. Uh, you know you're teaching systematically if uh, you're uh, looking at information that someone needs to know and you are organizing it intentionally in a way that, that then makes that information available, uh, learnable for the, end of, for the learner, teachable for the trainer. Uh, so there's an organizational aspect to systematic instruction. Um, and then there's a, a communication or training strategy aspect that, that the organized information itself is not sufficient. It has to be communicated uh, to a learner in an effective way. And, and interestingly, whether it's in our field of disability services or 
in the regular workplace in the community. Too often, one of those components is available, but the other is not. A lot of employers may go to a lot of expense to organize information and just hand it to an employee and expect them to learn it from organized information. Or they'll say to a trainer, go teach someone how to do it, but they haven't organized what they're going to teach. So putting those two things together uh, comprise two of the of the three components. The third one is actually not so much a uh, uh, an instructional component at all, but a value-based component that uh, Mark Gold saw from the very beginning that that people with disabilities were among the most vulnerable and and uh, uh, people who rarely had a say so in how things were done. So uh, he articulated a set of values, uh, almost a, a bill of rights of sorts, I guess that uh, especially given the the behavioristic uh, bent of the day back in the 60s and 70s, uh, almost no one was thinking about that, that you know, if, if it worked, you used it. And if it didn't work, you, you, you got a bigger strategy and tried to use that. Uh, but Gold was always focused on um, the relationship and he demanded, for instance, a balanced relationship between trainers and learners that uh, trainers have no say so over a learner and uh, and so they're equal partners as they sit down or stand up or w- whatever their position is in terms of teaching and, and learning so those are the three components now the obviously the details are are deep uh, within that but uh, but those are the three main components if you're teaching systematically yeah, yeah, absolutely. And as I train around the um, a country here in Australia, uh, that point, that final point that you made um, around being a partner with the learner, um, people really resonate with that. And you can see when I, I still actually show the Mark Gold videos, which are available on YouTube, um, and you can see the respect that he has when he's working with people. And... Um, I, you know, I just think that's paramount. And for me, um, when I'm sitting alongside somebody with a disability, I think they can sense that I'm on their side. And part of my gold system, of course, is no negativity. And I think they can sense yeah. that intent. Yeah. Makes all the difference, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Um, and you mentioned there um, about um, staff working and um, with people with disabilities and you know in a sense it's a case what I've found both working in the field and also through my research is that staff tend to use show and tell and that's that's about it and if it doesn't work then the person with the disability is blamed as opposed to the trainer um, where they should be trying another way to use Mark Gold's term. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and go, uh, Mark was very clear about that, that the responsibility, the onus uh, was on the shoulders of the trainer. And even though it's a, uh, a balanced relationship, uh, after all, trainers are getting paid. We're the ones that have supposedly prepared ourselves, you know, academically and experientially to do this. And that, that it, it was really a first because I think until he came along, if a learner wasn't learning, uh, you blame the learner and just got another one. And uh, and you could go through any number of people finding a person that just happened to 
to hit with whatever strategy you were using. And, uh, and Mark shut all that down. He said, no, that, you know, you, from a value perspective, you can't do it. Uh, but then on top of that, he gave you a set of strategies that, uh, that made the interaction, the information passing work from the trainer to the learner. Yeah, absolutely. And it's actually a different mindset for trainers to get their head in. I know um, I also lecture here at one of the universities in Adelaide. And when I say to students, um, it's not the person with a disability's fault. It's actually yours. You have to think about how you try another way, try a different system, try a different different way they look horrified at me. <laughs> um, and so this is quite challenging for trainers, I think, you know, to take some yeah. of the responsibility onto themselves. I find that people with disabilities are just so capable and we underestimate it and it's so easy to blame them and say they can't learn when actually it's not about them, it's about us as a trainer. Yeah, and it, you know, it really is interesting to see family members, um, you know, whether it's parents or siblings or, or uh, friends of people, teachers at times, if it's an academic uh, setting, uh, and staff, uh, when, they, when they see a person uh, performing in a way that shows their competence, it's, uh, it's, it's really an epiphany. And, you know, it, it, uh, uh, it, it can seem like a, a parlor trick, but of course it's not. It's, it's you know, the use of the set of strategies that, and, and values that really all come into play that work. And, uh, and when people get their head around it, uh, you know, some wonderful things can happen. And it's, uh, uh, it's, it's what we've been trying to do for years is to make sure people get that awareness and have those skills because it, they it's not at all intuitive. I don't think, I mean, it's, it's, it may be intuitive to hope people can do things, but the disability field has kind of had its perspective for, for decades and decades that, that that's why we refer to people as having a disability for some perspective about what they can't do. And instead, when they, uh, when they get uh, access to a set of strategies that work, they're, uh, they can get pretty excited about it. And people's lives can change. I mean, that's the big thing that uh, the lives of people yeah. that, get jobs and have experiences. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's a few points I want to pick up from there, Mike. Um, one is that it, it does seem like a miracle. Um, uh, but when I say that, it's it's clearly not. Um, the person with disability is quite capable. We've just got to teach the right way. Um, and like you, um, that change in the person with a disability and how they can gain knowledge and learn skills is just phenomenal. It's what life is all about for me. Um, but in saying all that, I don't want listeners to think that systematic instruction is difficult. And I agree, it's counterintuitive. It's not exactly, it's not the normal way that we train, but it's, it's a series of steps, but it's not difficult. It's quite um, it takes a lot of practice to do well, but the mm -hmm. steps themselves individually aren't, you know, we're not asking you to be a rocket science yeah, to learn it. this. Yeah. I agree. I, I agree. Um, yeah. Peter, were you about to say something? <laughs> Sorry, I'm giving June a bit of air time there. Uh, <laughs> Mike, let's take it a little bit further and let's take this into the workplace. You know, yeah. we've, maybe we've done our job correctly and we found someone employment and we now have a job support in the workplace. 
where do we go from here? We've obviously done a little bit of training as part of the job development, but now we're sitting in a workplace with an employer and I'm your job support or your, your job coach mm-hmm. in that setting. What's the role of systematic instruction and how do we deal with the conflict between I'm here as a guest, uh, supporting a worker in a business that really kind of go, well, you know, you're not an employee. Yeah, we... Th- I, th- I know an answer that I'll tell you, but it, it hasn't been it hasn't been a straightforward answer uh, in the 40 years that I've been involved uh, in trying to answer that question. Uh, it used to be we we said to an employer, uh, you need to let us do it, because if you do it, you won't know how. And it was implied you'll muck it up and it just won't work. So if you'd let us do it. But it, do it here means all the training, all the support, all the supervision. Um, then, and, and you know, so then we took the the powerful information from the research labs and 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 took it into the uh, workplace. Uh, and in doing that, if you if you really had trained people, and and Mark Golden Associates uh, obviously often did, and and other people, it, uh, other approaches to training and. And other people who may have used our training often often did pretty well. Uh, but what happened uh, that we weren't considering was, well, okay, at some point, every trainer's got to leave. This isn't a permanent relationship. We don't work there with the person for life. So so what happens when we leave? And, and we saw people losing their jobs because jobs change all the time. And we hadn't left a set of skills with the employer. Uh, so... The, the modern era, I think, started in 1988 uh, when two colleagues of mine, a, my major professor and a, and a student colleague, Jan Nesbitt and Dave Hagner, uh, wrote an article in the Advocacy Organizations Journal here in the States uh, called TASH. And uh, that article was called Natural Supports, and it was a reexamination of supported employment. And what they were challenging us to do uh, it, at least putting the, the word on the table. The article wasn't a be-all and end-all article of helping us answer your question, but it, it did put the challenge on the table that maybe the best place to start is not from our perspective, but from the company's perspective. And uh, for us, that that caused a, MGNA, it caused a huge re-examination of our own, uh, what we felt our 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 strongest skills were. I mean, we could always lead with our ability to teach and pretty well convince an employer that that if you had let us do it, then this person would be a stellar employee, or at least while we were there, they would be a stellar employee. Um, and and it, it was quite a journey, and it has continued to be so. But in 92, about four years later, we gathered a group and came up with the seven-phase sequence, which is a it's a conceptual model that actually starts job support from the perspective of the culture of the business in which the individual is going to work rather than from the needs of the, of the employee or the skills of the, uh, of the supporters. And, and that's a, that's a sea change. It's a monstrous change. And we've been learning about that in all the years since and writing about it and, and uh, putting it into practice. And I'll tell you that it works. Uh, June, as you were saying, it, it, it's at the same time simple and it's, and it's complex. The simplicity is you look at what we call ways, means, and people. Uh, 
the way a business does what it does, the means it uses to continue itself and the people it assigns to do that. And there you're, it, it's a, that provides a cultural analysis of a business. And then you go to work with the, with the risk, the implicit risk of, of having these natural features come to bear on the needs of a person who frankly can have a very significant disability. We've never thought that that would work, but then the seven phase sequence, because it's not four phases, it's seven, um, provides backup to where you actually build capacity within the, the workplace. And that's where the need for knowledge of systematic instruction is so important because without it, uh, you know, the, the natural folks turn to us and they say, well, what do we do now? And you go, I don't know. I thought you knew you're the one that has the company. So uh, yeah. the, this, this approach just reshapes everything. And it's exactly where we are uh, with the answer to your question. So we start naturally, we bring our, we bring our information to bear when it's needed uh, and we build capacity within the setting. So when we leave that capacity is, is left there. It's existing. It's not, it's not, doesn't leave with the support person. It actually stays. It's, that's, it, that's an, an interesting one from my perspective, because one of the, the uh, problems that have been brought to us by providers is that they can't get large organizations to employ because the organizations are saying, well, we don't know how to do that, which seems to me that, that some of that knowledge that you're talking about is, has, has been lost in the disability employment services. So we've actually started the program working with large corporates um, where we actually start by examining all their practices and policies, um, uh, which is, uh, we, you know, they think it's revolutionary. And it's mm -hmm. just simply, you're saying that, you know, you guys started doing that decades ago, but, but again, yes. it illustrates what I started mentioned earlier on about systematic instruction people have forgotten to do that and now we've we've also forgotten to discuss the assisting the employer to change their processes um oh someone's got a train <laughs> yeah it's just outside my wall here it's gone now. <laughs> um and so it, it seems that we've forgotten what we knew and we're having to rediscover it and redo it again. Why do we keep having to go back to the well all the time? <laughs> well, if you can answer that, you're probably in the wrong field. Uh, uh, or maybe you are a psychologist and uh, that you, you might have the answer already. For the life of me, Peter, I, uh, uh, I wonder about that all the time. It's good for a consultant, though. I mean, it keeps us in business because, uh, you know, it seems like every generation of staff, which is probably two or three years now in most organizations uh, find themselves needing the same information again and again and again. So it's uh, I, I do not have an answer for that very deep question. Uh, and the, the result, the way we handle it is we just stay at it. You know, we just keep, keep at it. Right. And that seems to be something that, that Trevor Parmenta is always lamenting that, that we just seem to be replicating what he did a long time ago. I'm not going to say how many years because his June will tell me to, not to. Um, but it seems to illustrate that there's something missing in the processes and something missing in the service system that we can't embed this and have it grow. Well, and, and here in the States, at least, I mean, a big part of it is is pay, uh, that, that you actually develop some some real skills in mostly these young people that, that uh, we end up training. And if they're not supported within their organization with a clear 
you know, employment path that would stay with them and, and they can grow and, and, uh, you know, make a living wage. They're going to take their, their information somewhere else. And, and I think too often that happens. We for our part, we don't, we don't support these kinds of services with the, the funding that's needed to, to really hold on to the young people of today. We got plenty of them. We just can't hold on to them. Right. Mike, I've got a question here from one of the listeners and that would be, um, she's asked, uh, would you name, would you please name the first phase? She's referring to the seven yes. process. Yes. It's, um, it's called natural ways and we do it in a, in a, uh, activity called job analysis, which is really a cultural analysis of the business. It's done prior to the, um, the uh, employee coming in. So it's uh, after the employer has said, yes, I'll hire you. But before the individual's first day of work, uh, the job supporter goes in and starts by looking at the most defining aspect of any business, the way they do things. And, uh, and so it's natural ways. And then the next two are, are natural means and natural people. Right. June, did you have a question? Yeah, yeah. Um, Mike, I'm just wondering if we can um, take the discussion um, to just a slightly different area. I, mm-hmm. um, you've written a fascinating white paper um, called The Productivity of Fallacy, and we've covered here a little bit about how um, great people with disabilities are and the skills that they can learn and, and, and how great they can be in the workplace. Here in um, Australia, we've had, uh, we have, had several tools on working out how to pay people with disabilities. Um, And they're basically productivity based. Um, One has been overturned in our courts here and the BizWatt is not allowed to be used anymore. However, we still have the SWS. And again, it is a productivity based tool. And I noticed that you talk um, about some people with disabilities um, because of their significant disability, will never actually meet productivity standards, regardless of mm-hmm. how much training or job matching or assistive technology we provide. I'm just wondering if you'd like to expand on that for us, please. Yeah, thank you. I, I would. Um, and it's uh, it's a real deal. And it, it's not just about disability. I, it, I don't know how many people are on the call, but we all have things that, like if, if I was paid for my singing, I would be paid at below minimum wage, okay? In in fact, I would be paid a gratuitous wage just because people would feel sorry that that's all I had to offer. And uh, and it turns out that with with pay, since when we link productivity with pay, there's several problems. One, Mark Gold's research indicated that there was no connection between IQ or any kind of way of thinking about what intelligence is, but he he was using IQ uh, and a person's ability to learn and perform a complex task. None was, I mean, that's, that, that's a profound statement and one I believe mm-hmm. completely. Yeah, me too. But that's, that same research did not indicate that all people could perform the task, could, could do it as fast as someone else. And, and it could be typing at a keyboard or, or putting a widget together or whatever it happens to be. It doesn't matter those differences are, are huge among people. And yet it, it seems to have made uh, sense in the way in which pay is, is comprised. Certainly here in the state sounds the same as 
is in Australia. And, uh, and what we found that, I guess we found a couple of things is first, it's always established quality, regardless of what you're doing. If you're a support person, if you're an agency helping someone, it all starts with quality. As soon as you go to productivity and let it lead, um, that things fall apart. And, and it does it in our field, but it also does it in, in outside of our field, if you will, in the real, in the world of business, whether it's manufacturing or, or, uh, you know, whatever the field is that is trying to do something at a certain rate and, and you go there first, then things fall apart. So you start obviously with, with training and establishing quality in performance. And one of the things I feel in this is, is quality performance is always valued period regardless of how slowly it's done. Rapid performance that's an error is never valuable at all. So if you, you, you start with that, and, and then you start uh, some subtle strategies to try to increase the pace of performance. But, but again, if, if I'm looking at a person who has cerebral palsy, for instance, and maybe they've got some minimal movement in one hand, any notion of trying to find a task that I'm using physical disability because it's, it's something we can all think about uh, to find a task that they're going to perform as quickly as someone else or at some rate of pay. It's, it's like, give it up. And that's why these folks have often been considered uh, not feasible for employment here in the States. So one of the things that made the difference for us was, was shifting from a, from a productivity value base to a contribution value base and you work with an employer if you if you're just competing for a job in a classic sense they're going to always i think look at productivity but if you if you look at an employer's operations and you say what critically needs to get done and then before you've done that if you've gotten to know the job seeker through this process of discovery that that mgna developed uh, as a result of some qualitative work that I did back in the mid eighties at Syracuse university. And, and then we honed throughout the nineties and, and have used it to, to say, here is a starting point instead of testing people, which gets you back into that same, see the whole issue of disability in essence was set up on productivity. The, the, the fallacy goes deeper than the workplace the fact that you failed or did not do well on an intelligence test or a, or a vocational evaluation has to do with productivity. It's how fast you can do things. Uh, and, uh, and none of those things uh, often look at, uh, at how well you did it. They just look at how fast that you can respond. So uh, again, by going with the contribution route, we can actually have an employer look at their operation and consider it would be very valuable if a person could do whatever it is that is valuable to Oh no. Hello. Hello. I've lost Mike. Mike. Yeah, Mike, Mike seems to have dropped out there for a second. Um, says he's still online. Um, Mike's gone offline. Um, Hopefully, Mike will rejoin us in a few seconds. Um, technology is doing its thing. Um, let me 
see if we can get Mike back online. That's certainly um, his comments there around um, contribution-based um, as opposed to performance, um, as, as opposed to productivity-based is a very interesting concept and, um, you know, one that should be, I think, uh, talked about further here in Australia. June, would you like to say a little bit more about your experience of um, using Customised Employment in Australia while we get Mike back online? <laughs> okay, I have to fill in everyone. I'm so sorry. Um, yeah, certainly. I mean, um, I we've been training, CDERP has been training um, in Customised Employment for, for many years now, um, and it's certainly a very successful method. Um, of finding people employment. And the fourth stage of customised employment is um, really my area and where I like to sit and what we're talking about today. It includes those strategies that people um, can actually maintain their employment and hopefully also lead to career progression and job rotation for people with disabilities. Sometimes we put a lot of effort into finding somebody a good job match, and, of course, that's very important. Um, however, um, it's, I, I feel like it's equally important that once we get them in there that they can actually um, do the different tasks that they're asked to, and sometimes that requires um, more than one lot of training. Um, systematic instruction is one of those powerful tools that we can use to train. And there are many, many others as well, though, of course. Um, and uh, overall, the you know the system of customised employment is is uh, is a highly valuable um, process. Um, I think what we're starting to find here in Australia is that customised employment is uh, starting to be utilised, but it's also not being utilised fully. People are starting to hear a few terms like discovery and putting their own take on it rather than sticking with the original um, that Mark Golden Associates have um, created and Mike Callahan as well, of course. Um, right, and, and, and people yeah. like Gary Griffin and his group of, who were yep, also yep. developing the same, similar processes. Absolutely, yeah, all the work that they've done there. Um, so, yeah, I think that's one of my fears here in Australia is that we will change these processes that have had a lot of um, money and time put into research to make sure that they work well. Um, and I think if we water down the process, um, that that can be a big problem. Right. And, and that goes the to the idea, hopefully Mike will rejoin us shortly, um, but it goes to the idea that, that what should be happening is the processes need to be evolving rather than being watered down to suit situations. Yes. So um, when I, I was going to ask Mike a question and maybe we, I might ask you until Mike rejoins us, um, uh, the idea that um, job coaches, um, they go into the workplace we're not seeing many job coaches taking these the skills of systematic instruction with them. Um, do you, I mean, this is a bit of a Dorothy Dixor, I guess, in the sense that what do we need to do to ensure that job coaches use systematic instruction methodology in the workplaces as a, as a given rather than something they have to think about later when there's a crisis? 
Yeah, I don't. I don't even think they're addressing it when there's a crisis, unfortunately. Um, so my research has been around interviewing job coaches that work in disability employment and asking them. I asked them about nineteen different. Um, training strategies that we know that are useful to train people with disabilities. And unfortunately, what happened was um, I would mention the strategy and I would say, do you, are, are you aware of this strategy and do you use it? And then if they said yes, I would ask, how do you use this? Give me an example of it. And what I found was that most job coaches said yes, that they did use the strategies. And then when I asked for an explanation of how they would use them, they actually had no idea. So they were very familiar with the term systematic instruction and, and many others like video self-modelling and fading and all sorts of things that we use. Um, so they were familiar with them, um, but they weren't um, utilising them. They either flat out weren't utilising them or they were utilising them incorrectly. And so that creates a big problem. So I think one of the things that we need to do is we need to be training our job support staff and they need to have real knowledge in how to do these strategies. The other, the other um, thing that we need to do is provide them with the time. Um, and then that comes back to funding. Um, certainly, um, I think, I got the sense that some job coaches would love to use these strategies, but they literally aren't given the time. Um, the way the funding is set up, it's very much about find the person a job and then get out of there to go work with the next person to find them a job. So we're not actually allowing the job coaches time. So we're not training them and then we're not giving them the time to do it. So. Um, you know, I have real empathy um, for the job coaches because I just don't think they're being, um, they're not they're not given the skills, but they're also not given the time to, to do this. So, yeah. Right. Um, Mike looks like he's um, just about I mean, to re-enter the studio with a bit of luck. Um, usually what we find is when, it, when the, the, the program says that someone's entering, um, it's about a minute or so later before they, we see them live on screen. So Mike's coming back. And Mike's symbol is flashing, jumping up and down, which suggests I need to press this. There you go. And Mike, are you Can you hear me? Yeah. Yes. I'm back. It just uh, it just went away. <laughs> Sorry <laughs> about that. No, that's all right. That's technology. Mike, I just asked you a question in relation to um, job supports in the workplace and why they're not using systematic instruction as a normative process. Um, and June mentioned that, that we're not even seeing it in, when there's an emergency. I mean, what's the solution yeah. to that? Well, I mean, <laughs> I think so. I think so. And, uh, you know, uh, it, one is just uh, once you once you think about the the fact that, you know, we're that all my life I've worked with people described as having intellectual disabilities and how could you not know the skills necessary to teach them uh, if if you're going to be a support person of some sort. So, I mean, it, it's a it, it, it's a an availability thing, I guess, in a in a way. Everyone that we every time we do one of our trainings, uh, I remember a year or so ago up in uh, 
our state of Minnesota, northern state in the United States, a, a, a woman, uh, a manager reflected, why, why haven't they, I mean, she was almost angry, why haven't you been doing this uh, all over the place? And we said, we have, we have, we, we try to do it all we can do. Uh, it, so it's just, it's just keeping the word out. I mean, you know, more people that, that look at it, and, and maybe there is some thought that it's, uh, it's so complex that I don't even want to take the time to, to deal with the nuances. But uh, June, I think you were saying this, it is, it is not that at all. You know, it's a, it's a relationship between two people that one person has information they've prepared to convey. And the other person is, is if you thought about the task itself, they're, they're ready to learn that information uh, and just giving people that opportunity. So that, you know, there's, I don't know the silver bullet, but, but I do know when people have the opportunity they respond enthusiastically. Right. Yes. Mike, just to, I'm going to just step back a little bit. There's a question here that was sort of waiting for you um, while you were having your brief sabbatical there. Um, mm -hmm. You were talking about contributions earlier on, mm -hmm. and there's a question here where someone, uh, one of the listeners would like to know a practical example of a contribution. Yeah. Okay. That it's, so you, for us, it's got to start, with who the person is. We don't even, we, we dare not go to a workplace and start looking for ways a workplace could benefit in terms of a contribution. Because if you do, and you're truly, you're working with a person who's truly, truly has a significant impact of their disability, chances are it's not going to fit who they are, either from a skill perspective or an interest perspective or the conditions of the task don't work. So the, to, to get to that point, you have to start with the, uh, with the individual. So uh, I'm just going to make up a scenario, you know, kind of off the top of my head. So you, you, you get to know someone and, um, and you find that, uh, that uh, in their, in their, that they live with their parents who are older adults. And this is a, you know, 20 something, 30 something year old man or woman, doesn't matter. Uh, and they spend a, an awful lot of time in the uh, in the parents' uh, woodworking shop. And, and again, I'm just making this up. And and you actually start looking at the the skills the individual has in that context. And then you do something we call translation. Translation is looking at at uh, things that people do well. Uh, skills of their lives that we can say, you know, if this person can do this in this context, then we'll step back. Maybe it's not trying to find a woodworking shop that has the same thing. You might be successful doing that, but more likely that you're not. So you, you do some translation and you start coming up with what we call a task list that one way to, to, make contribution concrete is to make the words we use about it concrete. So instead of, instead of painting flower pictures about how wonderful this person is and, you know, what a nice uh, addition to your workplace they would be, all of which may be true. I'm not saying that's not true, but that's, but it's the kind of contribution that an employer has a hard time getting his or her head around and say, ah, that's, that would help my operation. So the more concrete we are about tasks, um, 
the better we can then go to an employer. And, and if you think about it, where would you go if you had a set of tasks? We found a, a, a critical number is anywhere between about eight and 12 tasks. It's not some huge overwhelm. You don't have to fill up a, uh, you know, some uh, a digital resume with all these tasks. It can just be something that's doable. And you present it to an employer and say, in your workplace, if you have any of these, if any of these things are done in your workplace as, as work tasks, and, and if, if you would find that it would be a benefit to your organization, to your operation, we'd like to think about checking that out. And we have some processes to do that. And then when you, when you, when you get yourself, at, we call it a needs and benefits analysis. And when we actually get ourselves in that, in that workplace and can see people doing things that, that the, the skills of the job seeker begin to match the, the benefit to the company, you've got the beginning of a contribution. So it's, it's not a, it's a very, very concrete thing. If you make it so, I think too often we don't, we make it, we make it uh, very ethereal and, and uh, you know, it, it's hard to get your head around. And some employers say it was really nice to have nice people, but I need somebody that can get the work done. Okay, let's let's name a task in a way that the employer can can say, yeah, that'll that'll work for me. And uh, and more often than not, the issue of disability begins to go away because you're really focusing on what people are going to bring to a business. So that's and again, I'm compressed the answer, but that's about as compressed as I can give you. Right, June, do you have a question yeah. for Mike? That's great. That's great, Mike. Um, so I suppose um, building on, on your comment and, and the one I was making while, while you were off air, um, you've, you've written another uh, uh, paper that I that I fascinates me um, and it talks about um, quality outcomes versus um, quality providers. Here at mm-hmm. CDERP we've actually... Um, we're working on developing, and we've almost done it, I think, um, a cert for in customised employment. And I'm just, you know, so that hopefully uh, job consultants can can learn some um, useful skills. I'm just yep. wondering if you can comment on that quality outcomes. And I know in the States you have regulations around vocational services using qualified personnel. Um, yes. How important yeah. do you think that is? Well, I think it's important, but but it is. I think by your question, you've anticipated that it's 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 challenging. So mm. it's expensive for a company for a for a human service organization, one that's whose job it is, mission it is to support people to get the lives that they want, whether it's work or or outside of work. That's a that's an expensive proposition to um, to get their staff mm-hmm. certified, and too often the certifications address the, the characteristics of the person. Um, we have a, a scheme here that looks at what, what are called KSAOs, knowledge, skills, abilities, and other characteristics. Well, you could look at a lot of knowledge, skills, abilities, and other characteristics of a good staff person, and they still may not know what to do yeah. <laughs> with how to make something happen. So what that paper was about was to say, instead of saying that people have to go through this 
either training or certification to get these general characteristics, what if we specified what the details of, the, of a good process would actually be and then had people have the training about that and then have the have the determination if you get if someone gets quality and and but let me tell you where this came from one of the things that was happening and it's still very much the case in a lot of areas here in the states is is something called individual budgets or self-directed budgets so you you have an individual out there who has access to public funds and they need to hire somebody to help them get what it is they want or they don't have to but they they want to so one thing they could do is go to one of these very expensive agencies who invested all the money and they could say, okay, I'm going to pay my money to this person. You still don't know if you're going to get what you want, but what if you had someone that you knew or some entrepreneur that just said, I can't afford all of that training, but if you can tell me what to do to help the person get what they want, that the quality process actually replaces the need for that general kind of certification. And uh, MGNA has put that forward and it, it doesn't always make us good friends because there are a lot of, there's a lot of certifying entities that still mm. want to look at the characteristics of what you're doing rather than the actual process of what you're doing. Um, and it's not that those characteristics are bad, but that they don't necessarily lead to what it is that a person wants or needs. Whereas if you can articulate the process, make it clear, and and then you the person gets it, then it opens opportunity up like you won't believe. I mean, all kinds of people can do that. Uh, and and again, it started with these personal budgets, but it, it can apply more broadly to a human service organization wanting the same thing. Right, Mike, Mike sorry, June. Um, does that, one of the things that we see, and. Uh, often is that training is one thing, uh, but post-training, the mentoring and support is is really one of the crucial issues going forward. Um, and I guess it goes back to what I said earlier on about why aren't we seeing systematic instruction being used as a, as a normative. It, it seems to suggest that, it, that what happens after training isn't really happening. Uh, there's no mentoring yeah. and ongoing support to implement. You're exactly right. And uh, it's our frustration just as it would be yours. Uh, and then starting uh, about eight years ago, uh, MGNA set about to do what we call a performance-based certification. Uh, so we take, June, what you were asking about, we take these clear processes, we teach those processes, and then we, if you choose our performance-based certification, what you get is access to someone who actually helps you through the process after the training. Uh, now I have to tell you, it's expensive. Uh, yeah. That cost uh, per person for MGNA in U.S. dollars, which aren't that terribly different than Australian dollars, cost eight hundred and fifty dollars a person. This is after the training, but but virtually all of that money goes to the mentor. Those those quality people who know those skills who can, in a distance uh, relationship, help an individual actually implement what they learned in training. It's, it's just an expensive thing. But uh, we've been doing it now. We know how to do it. And it's a, 
I think it's a viable model. Uh, and, uh, and to me, it's as close as we've come uh, uh, in a private organization to, to be able to, to pull this off in a way that works. Yeah, that's that that's a fascinating comment, Mike, and um, I'm thrilled that we've been led to this because um, what I'm finding at the moment is we have this individual-based funding as well. Um, we call it NDIS. It's relatively new here in Australia. And what I'm finding is that I'm being, rather than being contacted, um, well, I'm still contacted by organisations, but I'm being contacted more now by um, families um, with a child with a disability and asking me to do um, this mentoring of the staff that they have employed to get the outcomes that they want for their um, individual um, adult child. Um, and for me, I totally believe that you have to have the mentoring. I've been in England and worked with Mark Kilsby and he teaches systematic instruction and he does an amazing job over there. However, um, when I was asking staff, did they use systematic instruction in the workplace, um, even though they, they were giving great ratings on the, on the training, they still weren't using it. Um, and this mentoring is just so important. We have to be there to mentor. But what I'm also finding is that this is very time-consuming for me and it's also very expensive um, <laughs> for the family. So I need to follow up with you behind, behind, um, behind this podcast today and, yeah. and, and get some pointers. We've uh, got a lot of information we'll share with that. Yeah, thank you so much. That's, mm -hmm. that's great. Yeah, yeah. That's a it's a valid point because one of the things that we, as you know, June will acknowledge is that this mentoring bit is the bit that hasn't really happened in Australia, but now we're seeing a tick uh, uptick in this, and we're certainly from from our perspective, much of the inquiry we get today is around that, you know, we've trained the people, but really we need mentoring, um, and I guess the difficulty is that as we sort of all alluded to and stated, this that's an expensive process. And trying to get organisations to invest in that really is probably one of the challenges. But let me let me move a little bit further from our challenges. What do you see as the as the the biggest shifts going forward um, in the use of systematic instruction and job support? Right? You know, it, it's it's hard for me to know, particularly since I've just been so focused on writing about it. As it's it's more a um, uh, getting it out there and and finding ways, just as we've just been talking about, uh, finding ways to, uh, to to make sure that people who need it have access to it. For me, and this this may be just my advancing older age, I'm not really seeing. I, I think we know how to do it. I'm not saying that there won't be innovations. There there will be. But, but really about people just communicating with each other is as old as humankind. So it's, it's not like, there's not like a lot that there's things to know, but there's, there's, we don't have to break a whole lot of new ground. We've got to figure out ways to do what we know. And then when we do what we know, I think then is where the innovation comes in. So, uh, you know, I, I'm not, not trying to avoid the question as much as to just say, uh, you know, this stuff works. It just plain works. So, so how do we 
uh, do what you and June are, are asking about. How do we how do we make sure that these families, uh, you know, in a remote part of Western Australia or a remote part of of New Mexico in the United States or wherever they are, how do we how do we make so make it so that they get access to the information that we know that works? And I think that that a lot of things have changed as far as as technology and that, and we'll continue to to learn from it. But I think that's where the that's where the next wave is. Right, Mike. Uh, let me finish with uh, one more great question from June. June, go for your life. <laughs> Thank you so much, Mike, for um, talking with us today. Really appreciate your insight and experience. Um, I just really wanted to ask, we, we talk, we've talked a lot about systematic construction and, and, of course, Mark Gold, who did, you know, so much work in this area and began the whole process and the California project and everything with thousands of people. Um, I'm just wondering, what do you think Mark Gold's message would be um, to us if he was alive today? Yeah, I, it's a great question. I think about it all the time. And um, one of the things I would, I would get some of my answer from, he, was, he, he had cancer and he, he fought it really hard. And just before he died, like two months before he died, he, he, did, a, uh, he did a presentation. And, uh, and we actually have a, a very, very bad video of it. It was unfortunate in its, uh, in its problems with the video, but the, the, the message was profound. And, uh, and he was certainly, he was certainly looking at, at the whole issue of, uh, of making sure people know how to teach. But beyond that, I think one of the oddest things he did, and it was odd, was that he, he really recommended that we get out of the field and take our skills into all the places where people are. And, and I think what he was asking or what he was challenging us with was, was thinking about the whole issue of disability services as less of a, of a professional only and more of something that, that people with, with values and skills could probably do about as much and maybe even more than we've managed so far if we put ourselves in the places where people need to be and they, they don't need to be in human service settings. So, so it's just all the places in the community. And, and I, it was, I've, I've always thought that part of his message today would be that. Um, but beyond that, uh, I think he would be both despaired at, at how little systematic instruction, he, he was a huge optimist. Uh, and he thought really once we had it, we could not be anything except driven to make things happen for people. And, uh, and I'm afraid that didn't happen to the degree that he wanted. So there would be some disappointment in that. Uh, but he would see, uh, I think, uh, that just in this conversation that we've had today, it's all been about community. And, and he would look at all the ways to use systematic instruction at work, at home, uh, with neighbors and friends and in recreation and all of the places that we live our lives. And then to make sure people have access to learn how to do things, particularly if they find it difficult to learn how to do things. And, uh, and I think that would be his message. 
but he would also be saying, uh, especially to some people just getting in the field, if this really lights your fire, then have a relationship with somebody and do something with them in the context of, of where you live your life. Mike, that's, that's quite profound. Um, June, thank you very much for your contributions. Uh, Mike, I, I think we're probably going to have a return visit. <laughs> and uh-huh. really what you've contributed today has been quite astounding. Um, very enlightening and, um, yeah, absolutely, absolutely brilliant. Be looking forward been my to pleasure and our conversation. Yeah. <laughs> I apologize for the, uh, for the tech glitch. Who knows where that came from, but uh, it got sorted, so... It worked out and very much pleasure. Thank you, Peter and Jim. Not a problem, Mike. Thank you, Mike. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone, for your contributions today. And we'll leave it there. Thank you very much, everyone.